Everybody doing all right? First service was on it. They, when I said good morning, everybody just said, good morning, Pastor Ryan. We're so glad to see you today. Thank you. See? Should have been in first service. You would have been in good company. Uh, we're gonna, we got lots to talk about today, so we're going to just jump right into the message. Uh, as uh, both Carol, Kelly and Jeremy said, uh, we are getting ready to embark on 21 days of prayer. And, uh, and so we're going to be in a series uh, that's based upon the book called The Circle Maker. And uh, if you've ever read it, uh, this may be a little bit of a refresher for you. Uh, but if you haven't, I uh, highly recommend picking it up and uh, following along as we go through this series. It's very challenging. Uh, it's really impacted my prayer life uh, in, the, in the last few months of just beginning to allow God to, to challenge and shape me and, and pull me closer to Him. And, uh, and so we're going to jump right into it. Our theme verse, which is not in your notes because I messed up and I put last week's theme verse this week, and uh, so I apologize, but it's from James chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, the, eff- the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the effective prayer of a righteous man and what it looks like to press in and to pray through the things that God's called us to pray through. Uh, I want to tell you a, a story before we get into the, the bulk of the scriptural story. Uh, it's a, about a guy during uh, the first century BC, there was this variety of uh, religious movements and splinter groups that developed among the Jews in Judea. Uh, a number of individuals claimed to be these miracle workers in, in tradition and kind of uh, in the same tradition of Elijah and Elisha that we read about. Uh, the ancient Jewish prophets. So the Jewish Talmud provides us kind of a glimpse, a picture about a story uh, and these Jewish miracle workers, one of which uh, is by the name of Honi Hamagel. I'm sure I'm saying his last name wrong, so for the rest of the morning I will not be saying his last name. It was the first century BC and a devastating drought had threatened to destroy the generation prior to Jesus, the generation right before Jesus. The last of the Jewish prophets had died off in uh, nearly four centuries before, and miracles were such a distant memory. They, they didn't really have any, uh, they were kind of in the history books, they didn't have any present examples of the miraculous, and God was seemingly nowhere to be heard. It was in this, in this period, in this time, where it just seemed like it was, there was a, a, a period of silence. Uh, there was one man, an eccentric sage, who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, who dared to pray anyways. And his name was Honi. Even if the people, he believed, could no longer hear from God, he believed that God could hear him. When rain is plentiful... It's an afterthought. During a drought, it's the only thought. And Honi was their only hope. So with a six-foot staff in his hand, Honi began to turn like a math compass. He would take this staff, and in the dirt, he would begin drawing a circle. He would go all the way around 360 degrees, and you just got to see it. That was a 360 view of me. You're welcome. Uh, He gets all the way around and he makes a commitment, a covenant between God to not leave the circle until rain comes. And he begins to pray. He drops to his knees, he raises his hands to heaven and with the authority of the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven, Honi called down rain by praying, Lord, 
Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. The words sent a shudder down the spine of all who were within earshot of Honey's prayer. Not because of the volume of his voice, but it was the authority, it was the, uh, it was the tone. There wasn't a hint of doubt in the words that came out of his mouth. This prayer didn't originate in, vo- in his vocal cords. This prayer originated in his soul. And then it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. Every head turned heavenward as the first raindrops parachuted from the sky. But Honey's head remained bowed. The people rejoiced over each drop, but Honey wasn't satisfied with the sprinkle. Still kneeling within the circle, Honey lifted his voice uh, over the sounds of the celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said that no raindrop was smaller than the size of an egg. It rained so heavily and so steadily that people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. Honey stayed and prayed inside his circle. Once more, he refined his bold request, not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain of thy favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, like a well-proportioned sun shower on a hot, humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly and peacefully. Each raindrop was a tangible token of God's grace. And they didn't just soak the skin, they soaked the spirit with faith. It would be forever remembered as the day, the day the legend of the circle maker was born. It would have been very difficult to believe the day before the day, but it was impossible not to believe the day after the day. A faction believed that drawing a circle and demanding rain dishonored God. They, in fact, they threatened to excommunicate Honey. But because the miracle could not be repudiated, Honey was ultimately honored for his act of prayerful bravado. The prayer that saved a generation was deemed one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. The circle he drew in the sand became a sacred symbol, and the legend of Honey the circle maker stands forever as a testament to the power that a single prayer can change the course of history. The earth earth has circled the sun now more than 2,000 times since the day Honey drew a circle. But God is still looking for circle makers. Bold prayers honor God. And God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by our biggest dreams or our boldest prayers. If, in fact, if your prayers aren't impossible to you, they're probably a little insulting to God. What I mean by that is if, if you can pray something that's within your power to accomplish anyways, then there's nothing of the miraculous, nothing of divine intervention that would need to take place to see that come to fruition. When we pray within our own abilities, they don't require divine intervention. But if we're praying bold prayers, we're asking God to part the Red Sea. We're asking for an iron axe head to float on the water. And when those kinds of bold, audacious prayers are prayed, 
God is moved to omnipotent action. There's nothing more that God loves than than keeping his promises, answering prayers, performing miracles, fulfilling dreams. That's who he is. It's what he does. It's what I've forgotten. It's easy for us to fall into this trap of complacency where we forget the God of the universe is for us, who wants to move in our life, who wants to do the miraculous. The greatest moments in life are the miraculous moments when, when humanity and divine omnipotence intersect and they intersect when we draw a circle around the impossible situations in our lives and invite God to intervene. This is what I promise as we go into these 21 days of prayer. God is ready and he's waiting. I have no idea what what your circumstance is. I know what circumstances I'm in the midst of, but I don't know all of our circumstances here, but I am confident that we are only one prayer away from a dream fulfilled, from a promise kept, or a miracle performed. It's absolutely imperative at the outset that we, we come to terms with this simple yet life-changing truth that God is for you. He is for you. He's not against you. If we don't believe that, then what happens is we pray these small, timid prayers. If we do believe it, then we start praying big, audacious prayers. Now, let me stop there for a moment because I see some of your wheels turning. And and if you're like me, when you begin hearing things like this about guys standing in circles praying for prayer to come down and demanding it and, and start talking about building our faith and all of those things... If you're somewhat of a Christian cynic like I can tend to be, which is not a healthy thing, what ends up happening is you start hearing hints of this gospel or this message that's being produced that's, that's about prosperity and faith. And if you just call it out, it will happen. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, you, you can rest assured that if anyone... As your pastor, if anyone is never going to end up here, it's this guy. This place hurts people. This place is not biblical. But probably in in a reaction to this message that's often produced, this message that's told that if you just had enough faith, this would take place, or this, this message that God wants to just bless you with all of your askings and all of that, In reaction to that, I've probably found myself over here praying prayers of very little faith. And so somewhere in the middle is this desire that the Lord wants us to be in, to walk in a boldness and to walk out in a faith, to stop praying in the defensive, but start praying in the offensive, start praying for God to move and work in our lives to recognize the promises, and to not be afraid to walk in faith, but not to get so far out on the edge that somehow we become unbiblical. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcript of our prayers becomes the script of our life. 
I want to read to you a, a story in Scripture from Joshua chapter 6. It's, it's really the, it's, if you're familiar at all with it, it's the story of the walls of Jericho coming down. If you're not, we're going to read through it. And starting in verse 1, and this is in your notes. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. And I'm going to read the whole story for you. And you're like, well, I can read. And I understand that you can read. But for the sake of uh, getting into the scripture today, we're going to read it. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. The army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets, say that five times fast, before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voice. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, and then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, and the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given us the city. Let me just give you some context of this if you're unfamiliar. Uh, if you ever want to go to the area of Jericho, we'd love to have you. This is a shameless plug to come to Israel with us in April. But if you've never researched it, you don't know that uh, there was a six-foot-wide lower wall and a 50-foot-high upper wall that encircled this ancient city. The mud-brick walls were so thick and so tall that the 12-acre city seemed to be an impregnable fortress. It seemed like God had promised something that was impossible. It seemed as though his battle plan was nonsensical. It didn't make any sense. Your entire army is to march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, you're to march around the city seven times. Every soldier had to be asking the question, why? Why? Why march around the walls? Why not scale the walls? Why not cut off the water supply? Why not use a battering ram? Why not shoot fiery arrows over the walls? Instead, God told the Israelite army to silently circle the city. And he promised, after circling 13 times over seven days, that the wall would fall. The first time around, I would imagine that those soldiers felt a little stupid. 
honestly. I mean, here are these army, this army of people, these soldiers who were trained to fight, and they're just walking around the city. By the seventh day, their faith was ready to pop. By the seventh day, they had so much faith, their, their strides, their steps getting more confident every day. And at three miles per hour, after they get up at six o'clock in the morning, at three miles per hour, each mile and a half march around the city took an hour and a half, or took half an hour. By nine o'clock, they began their final lap. In keeping with God's command, they hadn't said a word in six days. They just silently circled the promise. Then the priests sound their horns and a simultaneous shout followed. 600,000 Israelites raised a holy roar and the walls came tumbling down. After seven days of circling Jericho, God delivered on a 400-year-old promise. He proved once again that his promises don't have an expiration date. And Jericho stands and falls as a testament to that simple truth. If you keep circling the promise, God will ultimately deliver on it. This miracle is a microcosm. It's, it not only reveals the way God performed this particular miracle, but it establishes this pattern for our lives, for us to follow in our lives. It challenges us to confidently circle the promises that God has given to us. And it begs the question for all of us, what is our Jericho? What is it that we are in the midst of that we need to be circling right now? In your notes, the, the number one is what promises are you praying around? See, drawing prayer circles starts with identifying what our Jericho is. We've got to define the promises that God wants us to state claim. Now, here's the problem. Most of us have never circled any of God's promises. We read through Scripture, and we, we do it because it's the daily reading plan, or we do it because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, but, but rarely do we just take a moment and circle the promises of God and pray through those promises. When was the last time we circled the promise of God in Scripture and prayed them into existence? Number two, what miracle are we marching around? As I've been promise, uh, processing this in my own life, I find that I talk myself out of God performing miracles. Right? We, we, we mistake silence as an answer. When I was a, a youth pastor up in Washington State, I, uh, I worked for a guy who was notorious for silence. And I walked into his office one day, just so bold about asking him for a raise. And I walked into the office and I, and I said, listen, I've been thinking about this for a while. It's been five years since I've been here. I, would, I was wondering if there was any way that I could get a raise. And I, I've told this story before. My, my pastor just silenced, just didn't say anything, just stared at me. And I'm uncomfortable with silence, and so I'm just staring at him, and he's staring back at me, and there's just this, what seemed like an hour-long pause, which was probably just a minute. But eventually, I'm like, you know what? Never mind, I'm good. We, we're taken care of. We, we've got a house and a car, so we're fine. We're good. And I left. I'm like, I don't need a raise. 
But what's interesting is I take that into my prayer life and I'll be praying for somebody who needs healing. God, please heal my friend who's, who's dealing with cancer, who's dealing with, with this sickness, this illness. And, and I'll pray it for a day and there's silence. And, and then I'll start thinking, but uh, never mind. It's, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's, it's really, it's not that big of a deal. I guess, I guess I don't, they don't need it. Or maybe, or maybe, just maybe, we start praying this. And I want to be careful when I say this because I, I don't want to be perceived as a heretic. But, but oftentimes, I'll preface my prayer by, God, if it be your will. And, and really, that's just my safety net. Because if my, my friend doesn't get healed, then it must have not been God's will. That's not true. It certainly is God's will that someone would be healed. Why they don't get healed, why we live in a sinful, broken, deteriorating world, that I don't fully grasp and understand. But I do know this, is that the promise of God is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that God wants to heal people and wants to do the miraculous. And what happens oftentimes is I'm, I often find myself saying, or, or find myself with this out and kind of pushing it on God and saying, you know, if it's, if it's your will or, or no, nah, never mind. It's just probably, yeah, I don't want to bother you with this today. And I talk myself out of it. I, I don't walk in any sense of boldness encircling the promises of, that God has for us. Number three, what, does, what dream does your life revolve around? If you're like me, it's, it's rare that we'll write down a list of life goals. And I'm not talking about like your bucket list. I'm just talking about these life goals in which God's called you as an individual person to fulfill in your life. It's pretty rare that we sit down and write out the goals of our family. Uh, I think about my own family. I think about the missed opportunities as they were little as my kids were younger of just sitting down and writing what what do we want to see what what are the things that God wants to do in my kids lives and writing out those goals and those dreams and and begin praying about that drawing a circle around it instead we oftentimes will draw circles around blanks we just don't really get intentional or specific about the things that that we want to see God do in our lives more than a thousand years after the Jericho miracle, another miracle happened in that same place. Jesus was on his way out of Jericho, and two blind men stop him. And they say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The disciples saw it as kind of this human interruption. They saw it as a distraction. But Jesus sees it as a divine moment, an opportunity. And so he stops and he responds to these two blind men with a pointed question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Come on, Jesus, they're blind. You know what they want you to do for them. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or Jesus to figure out that they probably want to see. Yet he forced them to define exactly what they wanted from him. Jesus made them verbalize what they wanted. He wanted to make sure that they knew what they wanted. Not because he didn't know, but he just wanted to know, do you know what you want? And that's where drawing prayer circles begins. Knowing what to circle. 
What if Jesus were to ask us that same very, that, that very same question? What do you want me to do for you? Would we be able to spell out the promises, the, the miracles, the dreams that God has put in our heart? If you're like me, most of us would probably be a little bit confused, dumbfounded, because we have no idea what God wants for us. And the great irony of that is that we don't have the answer to that question, and it really causes a spiritual blindness just as much as these men were physically blind. So while God is for us, most of us have no idea what we want God to do for us. And that's why our prayers at times can be uninspiring. Let me, let me rephrase that. That's why my prayers at times can be uninspiring. If faith is being sure of the things we hope for, then being unsure of what we hope for is the antithesis of faith, isn't it? Well-developed faith results in well-defined prayers, and well-defined prayers results in a well-lived life. And like the two blind men outside of Jerusalem, you need an encounter with the Son of God. Outside of, the, uh, outside of Jericho, you need an encounter with the Son of God. You need an answer to the question he is still asking. God, what, what, when God is saying, what do you want me to do for you? We have an answer. Obviously, the answer to this question changes. Right? We need different miracles during different seasons of our life. We, we go through... Uh, these times where we need, we have different dreams for different stages of life. We, uh, we seek to claim different promises in different situations. It's a moving target all of the time. So my question for all of us, myself included, is why not now? Why not here? Let's not just read the Bible. Let's start circling the promises and praying those into our life. Let's not just make a wish. Let's begin to write down a list of the dreams and the goals that God's placed in our hearts. Not just pray, but begin to journal about what it is that, God's, that we're praying about. Listen, as I, as I read this book recently, I was super challenged by it. It's not the gospel by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a tool that has really, really challenged me. And I, I hope it challenges all of us in these next 21 days. As I was reading it, I realized I pray a lot, all the, I pray all the time for things, for petitions, for requests. I pray for the prayer cards all of the time, but I don't ever keep a journal about it. And so I'll pray for something a day and then just kind of let it go. And, and I thought, well, what would it look like if I started journaling these things? And then when the celebration comes up that somebody was healed or God provided something in somebody's life or a dream or, or, or a, a goal or something was accomplished that we would get to celebrate that. What would it look like if we were to pray with more intentionality and consistency by keeping a prayer journal? As I mentioned earlier, we're starting 21 days of prayer and I want to challenge us with a, a prayer experiment. It's it's simply picking a time and a place and identifying something or someone that you're going to circle for the next 21 days. The goal isn't to force God's hand to answer that prayer in the next 21 days. 
the goal is to really begin to establish the habit of drawing prayer circles. I'll tell you about a guy named Frank Laubach. On January 30th, 1930, he began a prayer experiment called the Game with Minutes. He decided that he wanted every minute of his day to think about something of God. And so he, he wondered if it was even possible, after reading the passage of Scripture that says, pray without ceasing, he wondered, is it even possible for me to be able to think one second of every minute about God? And so he set out to accomplish this. And six months into his experiment, uh, Laubach wrote these words in his prayer journal. He said, last Monday was the most completely successful day of my life to date. So far as giving my day in complete and continuous surrender to God is concerned. I remember how as I looked at people with a love God gave, they looked back and acted as though they wanted to go with me. I felt then that for a day I saw a little of, the marvel, of that marvelous pull that Jesus had as he walked along the road day after day, God intoxicated and radiant with the endless communion of his soul. A prayer experiment like this can turn a commute, a walk or, walk, or workout, or a meeting into a meaningful spiritual discipline. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. What if we stopped reading the news and we started praying it? What if, what if our lunch meetings turned into prayer meetings? What if we converted every problem or every opportunity into a prayer? Maybe we would get just a little bit closer to our goal of praying without ceasing. When I prepared my message, I was prepared to come and share with you something that I shared just a couple of weeks ago about really beginning to draw a circle around our, our, our property that we own. So we have this, this section of 10 acres that we're trying to sell and uh, and one of the things the Lord really convicted me of in this process is, is I, I didn't know what he wanted to do for me. And so I got fatigued. I stopped praying. I, I stopped really interceding. I got out of the circle, if you will, and stopped praying for the sale of the property. And so I was committed. I was committed to come here this morning and, and to share with you that that was going to be the circle I was going to draw. And I was going to start driving around it because it's too big to walk around. And, you know, and it's too hot. So, you know, we just begin praying and interceding. And, and although that will continue to happen, yesterday I started seeing on my Twitter feed what can only be described as a demonic act of hatred and bigotry. My naivety had assumed that these kinds of things didn't exist anymore. That surely in this world that we live in, We've moved beyond this sin. And that's really what it is. That's what I'm talking about. And, and I'm making reference to this, this rally in Charlottesville that, that is nothing short of sin. As the church, what do we do? Well, let me just say this. As followers of Jesus Christ, what are we to do? How are we to respond? How, do we just not say anything? Do we not just, just keep our heads down and focus on ourselves? Well, I don't What are we to do? Well, first and foremost, we're to seek the face of God. Individually, we're to seek the face of God corporately. 
that when what we see grieves us, our first course of action should always be prayer. That no, no amount of activism or Twitter posts can ever replace going before the one, the only one who can heal the brokenness in our world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The Bible is very clear that we will have sin in this world. There will be wrongs that need to be righted. Writing. There will, need to be, there will be wrongs that need to be made right. There will be tears that need to be wiped away. The Bible is also clear that it is as his church in this world, his Holy Spirit is on the move. And his Holy Spirit is reminding every one of us that hate will not win. It's reminding everyone in Charlottesville that hate will not win and that the church will not stop fighting for good for as long as we have breath. Sometimes we get overwhelmed though, don't we? I do. I couldn't even hardly sleep last night. We just get overwhelmed because we don't know what to do in the face of injustice, racism, and hatred. But we have to do something. We have to do anything. We have to just do something, take some small step. One of my friends on Facebook said it like this, that we all bear the burden to not tolerate even the smallest root of hatred in our social circles, in our barbecues, in our communities. The joke, the exclusivity, the tone of that conversation, that we have to be brave. We have to stand up in love, in unity, and in grace. We all have a part to play in this. We all have the burden to be peacemakers. Today we must embody the gospel of Jesus in our world, which is the basis for all love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And according to the verses that I just read to you, loving God looks a lot like loving our brothers and sisters. Listen, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about morality. I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about images that are coming across our social media feeds that we would say, really? In America? So for the next 21 days, I'll be drawing a circle around those who are being hurt by racism in our country. Something I didn't think I would be speaking on today. And here's my honest confession to you. This is my honest confession. Had no one driven a car into that crowd and killed someone, and all we heard about was these protests and these rallies, I'm not sure I would even be talking about it. And shame on me for being a pastor of a church who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ and not standing up against something of hatred and racism. We all have a responsibility in this.
for all of these things, it's easy for us to just say, you know what, I'll draw a circle around, I'll pray about it today. Pray about it. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Let's pray. And we'll pray about it, and then the news cycle switches and changes and all this, and then we, we move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And there's just some things that we have to pray through. There's some things that, that, that are deserving more of our time and our energy and getting on our face before the Lord than just pray, praying just for a fleeting moment. It requires us to pray through. And what I mean by that is there was a, a woman before Mother Teresa, there was uh, a woman by the name of Mother Dabney. In 1925, Elizabeth Dabney and her husband went to work for a mission in the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But there wasn't much love in her neighborhood. In fact, it was a hellhole. Her husband was called to preach. She was, call, she was called to pray, but she didn't just pray. She prayed through. One morning, she, she met with God and she prayed, Lord, if you will bless my husband in, in the mission you sent him to establish your name, if you will break the bonds and destroy the middle wall of partition, if you will give him a church and a congregation, a credit to your people and all Christendom, I will walk with you for three years in prayer, but both day and night. I will meet with you every morning at 9 a.m. sharp. You will never have to wait for me. I will be there to greet you. I will stay there all day. I will devote all of my time to you. Furthermore, if you will listen to the voice of my supplication and break through in that wicked neighborhood and bless my husband, I will fast 72, 72 hours each week for two years. And while I'm going through the fast, I will not go home to sleep in my bed. I'll stay in the church, and if I get sleepy, I'll rest on newspapers and carpet. As soon as she made this prayer covenant... The glory of God was poured out in a new way. Every morning at 9 a.m., Mother Dabney greeted the Lord with a hearty, good morning, Jesus. She wore the skin off of her knees, but God extended his powerful right arm. She fasted 72 hours a week, but the Holy Spirit was her direct supply. Mother Dabney's prayer legacy would be a long-forgotten footnote had it not been for a publication called the Pentecostal Evangel that, under, uh, that published her testimony under the title, What It Means to Pray Through. Our generation desperately needs to rediscover the difference between praying for and praying through. There are certainly circumstances where praying for something will get the job done. It's, it's good. It's, it's life-giving. It's needed. But there are certainly opportunities and times in which it requires us to pray through. There are situations where we have to grab hold and not let go until God answers. Like Coney refused to move from the circle until God moves. You intercede until God intervenes. See, praying through is all about consistency. It's circling Jericho so many times that it makes you dizzy. Like, like the story Jesus told about the, the persistent widow who drove the judge absolutely crazy with her relentless requests. Praying through doesn't take no for an answer. A circle maker knows that it's always too soon to quit because... You never know when that wall is about to fall. You, you never know. You, you are always 
only one prayer away from a miracle. See, praying through is all about intensity. It's not quantitative, it's, it's qualitative. Drawing prayer circles involves more than words. It's this gut-wrenching groan, a heartbreaking tear. It's breaking through doesn't just bend God's ear. It touches the heart of our Heavenly Father. And so I'll ask you the question that I had to ask myself. When was the last time that I just got on my face before the Lord? For me, it was yesterday morning during prayer. Beyond that, never. Never. We were instructed by Pastor Glenn as we were closing out our time in prayer. He said, let's just get on our knees, get on our face. And I realized, I don't ever do this. I don't ever do it because it's, we've, we've simplified our prayer life to just simply praying for things and not really. I'm not saying that posture, that there's some magic formula. God isn't a pinata in the sky that if we just do the right things and hit the right things that the candy's going to come out and he's going to answer all of our questions. But what I am saying is there are times in which we need to pray through and praying through is way more than just praying for. There are I believe that there are higher heights and deeper depths in prayer that God wants to take us as a church. There are new dimensions, if you will. But if we want God to do something new in our life, we just can't continue to do the same old thing. Let let this be a time of, of experiment, of challenge, this 21-day prayer challenge. Begin a new chapter in our relationship with God, a new time in how we pray and boldly pray. I want us to be challenged by this. And listen, it may not be for everybody, and I get that. I I can grab hold of that. I understand that. But I I think I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't at least try to move us towards this. Maybe swing our our pendulum just a little bit towards balance and saying, God, your promises are clear. Your promises are true. We sing about it. We say your promises are true. Can we pray about it? Can we circle the things in this world, in this life, and begin contending and praying through them? When I went to when I woke up yesterday morning, I had zero intention of talking about this horrible thing that took place in Charlottesville. But that's the thing I'm circling. I'm, I know it's, it's big, it's audacious. There's certainly not anything I and my own ability can do. But I do believe, as the promises made in Scripture, that if, if my people who are called by na- my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. If that's the promise, then let's circle it and begin praying it. Let's pray. In fact, let's do this. I did this first service. I'm going to invite you to your knees. If you're physically unable to do that, I totally understand that. And if you just aren't comfortable doing it, that's okay as well. But I'm going to invite, for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever prayed on your knees before. And 
And listen, there's nothing magical or mystical about this, but there is a sense of humility that takes place when we're on our knees. Because honestly, this is pretty vulnerable. And so rather than challenging us to circle this and say, one day let's pray about this, let's begin praying through this now. Well, Father, first and foremost, I repent of my naivety, my my thinking that the kinds of stuff we saw yesterday didn't exist in our country anymore, and I don't have any right or place, but Lord, I repent on behalf of of all of that mess. And God, we commit to, I commit to pray through this. To not let this be a a fleeting headline in the news article or in our social media feed, but, but to not remain silent, to stand up, and to do possibly the most important thing that we can do, and that's pray. And to stay in our circle and say, God, your promise is that you would heal this land. And so here we are, humbling ourselves before you, and we're praying, God, heal our land. Heal it. God, I pray for all of those who are living in fear today, that this has caused fear, it's called, caused division, it's, called a, it's caused a fracture in our country. God, I pray for healing. I pray for your peace, as we talked about last week in Philippians chapter 4. I pray for your peace that surpasses all understanding. That even in the midst of something that we can't even understand or wrap our head around, that, the, that there would be peace. And God, we will contend and continue to pray for peace in this world. God, I pray for all of us as we go into this season, as we commit these next 21 days every day, that you would, that we would be able to answer the question first and foremost, what it is that you want or that we want you to do. That we would know that. We would speak that in boldness. And God, that we would begin to see the miraculous move of God in our lives. Because your promises are true. We know you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, we contend for the miraculous. In Jesus' name, amen.